This is the Thrive Podcast with Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. And now, Pastor Fred Jeff Smith. Hello, welcome to the 34th edition of the Thrive Podcast with the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. I'm Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh, and I'm very happy that you're taking the time to share in this podcast, either through iTunes or through our YouTube channel. Uh, we are grateful for all those who continue to listen and share in the conversation. We're getting positive feedback, and we appreciate your continued support. Tell others about the Thrive Podcast as well. I'm very, very happy today, honored, uh, privileged to have uh, my guest here today, uh, who is an outstanding attorney in the Baton Rouge area. Uh, she works for uh, the Attorney General's office, and uh, she is a member of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, a lifelong member of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and she happens to be my little sister, Sanseri Smith-Clark. Thank you for sharing with us in the Thrive Podcast today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> You're more than welcome. Let's get right into it. I wanted to talk to you. I invited you on here because uh, as an attorney uh, and as an attorney who has significant experience uh, in uh, criminal justice issues, I wanted to get your opinion uh, and, and your uh, experience and background and expertise in I understand helping helping the community to better understand uh, the criminal justice system in uh, Louisiana, in Baton Rouge. When we talk about the law, I'm I, I'm I'm always uh, mindful of the fact that when we talk about the law, most of us are speaking from an from, from a standpoint of ignorance, uh, thinking that just because something makes common sense to us uh, that it falls in line with uh, legal uh, uh, parameters, uh, legal uh, legalese, the way the things are done legally. And I've had enough conversations with you now to know that that's simply not the case. So help, help the community, help me again, to understand where we are with regard to criminal justice issues in Louisiana and in Baton Rouge. Well, it's kind of hard for me to answer the question of where are we in regard to criminal justice issues. Um, with regard to how prosecutions are taking place. One, one, one of the things that, that, that some people would propose is that uh, prosecutions are disproportionate against certain people on the basis of race or on the basis of uh, economic need, things of that sort. Uh, how does... How does your office, or how does, because you've also worked in the district attorney's office uh, for East Baton Rouge Parish and Orleans Parish, uh, how does a prosecutor go about making the decision of which cases to indeed prosecute? Okay, that's a much easier question to answer, uh, because I don't think that most people understand um, the process that a case goes through. When uh, an arrest is made, a police officer makes a police report, and then, depending upon uh, a number of different circumstances, that report is either given to the district attorney or given to our office. Now, generally speaking, our office receives cases where the district attorney has some type of conflict. So, in other words, if a case takes place in East Baton Rouge Parish or a crime takes place in East Baton Rouge Parish and there is a conflict with either the victim or the accused, the accused or 
the district attorney's office is involved or some other state office is involved, they will generally recuse themselves, saying that they don't believe that they can make a fair decision uh, regarding prosecution, and they will send that case over to our office um, so that we can make a determination as to how to proceed on the case. Once we get the case, and it also pretty much works the same way if a district attorney's office retains the case. That case is assigned to an attorney that is employed with that office, and then they look at the evidence that is placed in the police report. Now, what people don't seem to understand is, is that there are two different um, standards for whether or not somebody can be arrested for a crime and whether or not we feel like we can prosecute a crime. All a police officer needs is probable cause for an arrest. But once we get the case, we're looking for a little bit more than probable cause. We're looking at what will we be able to prove given the parameters that we're going to be boxed into if we take that case to trial. Um, and in the more serious cases, that's always, well, not just in the more serious cases, in all cases where you're talking about a criminal prosecution, we have to prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. And a reasonable doubt is a much higher standard than just probable cause. So that's basically what we're looking at. We're looking at the evidence that the police officers have collected when the crime has occurred. Um, we talk to witnesses. We talk to the victim, you know, and we look at the case as a whole. And then we make a determination as to whether or not the police officer made a proper charge in charging that individual with whatever they charged him with, or if they should be charged higher, or if they should be charged lower. Once we do that, depending upon the charge that um, we decide to go with, we either take it to the grand jury. Um, in some cases, you're required to go to the grand jury. In capital cases, you're required to go to the grand jury before you can proceed to a trial. Or we just file a bill of information, in which we file with the clerk of court's office, this person is guilty of this crime uh, committed on this date. And we give very brief uh, facts as to what the crime that is alleged. Mm -hmm. That case is then assigned to a division of court, and then the trial process begins. Usually the defendant is brought in, he is arraigned, either pleads guilty or not guilty. If he pleads guilty, then a sentencing date is scheduled or sometimes they're sentenced the very same day. If he pleads not guilty, then you have to go through discovery. Uh, in a lot of cases, that involves a number of months, you know, and a number of hearings that, that may or may not take place depending upon the type of charge that the person is being charged with. Once you get through with discovery, uh, an offer may be made either for that person to plead to what he is charged with or to a lesser charge. He either takes that or he does not. Depending upon what his decision is, we then go to trial. And then we go through the trial process. And then he is found guilty or not guilty by a jury. Or, in certain cases, by a judge. So, from time of arrest to time of trial, Mm -hmm. typically, what's the length of time 
in that? There is absolutely no way I can tell you that because that depends on a number of things. It depends on how proactive the defense attorney may be. It depends on how proactive the prosecuting attorney may be. It depends upon whether or not we can get in touch with certain witnesses. It depends upon whether or not all the evidence, uh, if it was sent to the crime lab, how long it takes for the crime lab to come back with whatever testing that they are doing on certain evidence. There are a number of components that are involved in that. I have some cases that settle uh, one way or another within six months. I have some that have been going on for five years. You know, it's just, it's just no way of telling. There are a number of factors that can fall into whether or not a case moves quickly or slow, slowly. You've been a practicing attorney for over 30 years. Uh, you've served in Orleans Parish, you served in East Baton Rouge Parish, uh, you've served uh, as a district attorney, and now you serve uh, on the state level in the Attorney General's office. There was a brief period of time when you were a litigator uh, in civil actions. Uh, in your experience as a lawyer, how would you rate the general knowledge of the public regarding the law? General knowledge? Uh, <laughs> I can only judge based upon the people that I come in contact with. Right. Okay, so that is what my opinions on that uh, question would be based upon. And based upon the people that I come in contact with, it's slim to none. <laughs> okay, people and, and, and I knew what the answer was. I was, uh, I was hoping that you, that you would say that because I, I want to get to the issue because you and I, we have breakfast on a regular basis mm -hmm. and quite often we get into these debates where I say something thinking that I know something about the law mm -hmm. and you will say that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> so I, I don't consider myself to be a completely dumb person. And neither uh, do I. <laughs> but, but I do think that there is a wide disconnect between what is truly the law and what people think is the law. And I'm, I'm asking you, why is that divide so great? And how can we close that gap? Because the why is that great? Because people don't really want to go by the law. People want to go with what they feel the law should be depending upon their particular situation. The example I always use is traffic laws, okay, because that's something everybody who drives tends to want to follow, okay? You could be driving down the street going 80 miles an hour knowing that the speed limit is 70. You, you know what the speed limit is, but you got somewhere to be, you got to get there, you left home late, you got to pick up your child, whatever it is, so you're going 80 miles an hour. You're not the only person going 80 miles an hour on the expressway, okay? Everybody that you're with, you're flowing with the traffic. Everybody's going 80 miles an hour. Correct. But the cop catches you. Yes. Okay? You mad because the cop caught you. And the first thing you say is, well, that ain't fair. That ain't fair that he stopped me because everybody on the interstate was going 80 miles an hour. I wasn't the only one going 80 miles. How he know it wasn't the person next to me that was going 80 miles an hour instead of me going 80 miles an hour? And how do I know he didn't calibrate the... You know you broke the law. You know you were going 80 miles an hour. But you're mad because you're the one that got caught. Now, if you really want to follow the law, what you would say is, you know, he got me. I need to pay the ticket, that's the end of it. But you don't want to follow the law. 
What you want is for him to leave you alone and let you go 80 miles an hour. (laughs) That's what you want. And even if he has to catch somebody, you want him to catch the person in that other car as opposed to catching you. Okay. But so people say that they want to follow the law, but they don't really want to follow the law in a lot of cases. What they want to do is for the law to just overlook what they did. I, okay. I can follow that uh, hypothetical, but when it comes to understanding why prosecutors choose or, or and, and, and I know that sometimes it's not necessarily the prosecutor, but the supervisor of the prosecutors that makes the decisions with regard to uh, mm-hmm. how people are charged, uh, the question becomes, how can the public have a better understanding of why certain people are charged one way and certain people are charged another. What's the difference between possession and possession with intent to distribute? And how is that distinction made? I'm not asking you for a legal Mm -hmm. definition. I'm asking you, how can the public come to a better understanding of why one person is charged with with, quote-unquote simple possession and another person is charged with possession with intent to distribute, which... I presume carries with it a much uh, stiffer penalty if found guilty. It does, and don't ask me what the penalty is because off right. the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. No, I'm using that as a hypothetical t- because these are the kinds of conversations that are being held. Right. Uh, uh, person X who mm-hmm. comes from a certain neighborhood and who is of a certain ethnicity is charged with X mm-hmm. uh, p- possession. Right. A person Y who comes from a different neighborhood and is of a different ethnicity is charged with possession to with, with intent to distribute. And, and I'm not going to. And, and sit the people will say that's not fair. That that's wrong. And and, and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that there are not cases where it is isn't fair. Okay, I'm I'm black just like the majority of the people that you come in contact with, and I will tell you that in my opinion there are cases where. Black people are treated unfairly, just like there are cases where Vietnamese people are treated unfairly. There are cases where white people are treated unfairly. There are cases where anybody of any ethnicity are treated unfairly. But what you have to look at in making a determination as to whether or not you're going to charge someone with possession as opposed to possession with intent to distribute, and I'm using that example because that's the example you brought up, you look at a number of things. What was going on when you got caught with the possession? Uh, when you got charged with the possession, were you just sitting in a car and, you know, you got stopped for a certain reason, you allowed the officer to search your car, and when he went into your car, he found whatever drug was in the car, more than likely you're going to get charged with possession on that, depending upon the amount. If you have a small bag of, let's say, weed, okay, if you have a small bag of weed in the car and you're just sitting in the car, the cop sees it in the car, more than likely you're going to be charged with possession of, of that weed. If, in, on the other hand, you go in the trunk and you got a boatload of weed in the back of your car, more than likely you're going to get charged with possession with intent to distribute because what he's thinking is you don't have that much weed in the back of your car just for your private consumption. Mm-hmm. What you're probably going to do with that is distribute it to other people. Okay, and now you got to understand distribution doesn't mean selling necessarily. Right. Okay? It just means you plan to give it to someone other than yourself. So, and once again, possession doesn't mean ownership. It is not 
uh, ownership with intent to distribute, it's possession with intent to distribute. You can possess something without owning it, mm-hmm. you know, but people think, well, that's not my weed. Doesn't matter if it's your weed. You possessed it. So you have to understand the meaning of the words that, as they are used according to the different laws. Do you... F- is it a correct statement to say that there are words that are used in common vernacular that have one meaning, that have a completely different meaning when it comes to the law? And that while we may think that we have an appreciation for what a word means or for what a term means because of how it's used in common vernacular and everyday conversation, that uh, it does not necessarily relate to how it is used uh, in, in a court of law. I would agree with that. Okay. So how do we bridge these divides that seem to uh, exist? And, and, and I bring this up not simply as an exercise, but because there's a lot of friction that results from this. Mm-hmm. The, the, there's a lot of, uh, of anger that comes from the fact that we think we have an understanding of something that we don't necessarily understand mm-hmm. uh, and and we think that others are being high-handed or heavy-handed or prejudicial or discriminatory in in how they utilize the awesome power that you have because district attorneys and attorneys general and United States attorneys have an awesome amount of power. Uh, and, 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 and we think that, that sometimes the way that that power is used is less than judicious uh, and, 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 and sometimes completely unfair. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps some of that, not all of it, but some of that stems from the fact that we simply don't have a good understanding of how these terms are used and, and what the law actually says. How can... How can we bridge that gap? Well, I think that the legal community, um, specifically district attorney's offices and attorney general's offices and city prosecutor's offices, could aid the public in that by offering to to help educate people by putting on seminars and that type of thing so that they have a better understanding of what the laws are and how people can operate uh, within the law. But also, I think the public has a general responsibility to educate themselves. You know, if you really want to know what the code says about what a crime is, pick up a code and read it. You know, you can even look it up online. <laughs> now, you know I've tried to read some of your law books. <laughs> and and it's difficult reading. Uh, it's boring reading, yeah. <laughs> but there's nothing difficult well, about it. There are terms in there that are not a part of everyday vernacular, and, and I'm trying to wait for one to pop into my head, and one is not popping into my head right <laughs> at this minute. But 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 th- there's terminology in there uh, that that is just not a part of everyday common vernacular. I I agree that there needs to be a synthesis. There needs to be mm-hmm. a meeting between the two. Uh, I think that the law uh, needs to be accommodated to people's everyday understanding. Uh, in the way that it is explained to people. Uh, I'm not talking about the way that it's handed out. I'm talking about having these seminars that you suggest, these workshops, mm-hmm. that people need to be trained in how to 
explain the law in such a way that a third-year-old, to use Denzel Washington's phrase from the movie Philadelphia, uh, that a third grader could understand uh, what what the law actually says about those things. Mm-hmm. I agree with you that people should take the time to read and not just go off what they think they understand uh, or what they think is common sense. Uh, but when I go into a doctor's office and he wants to explain to me what my condition is, I, I, I don't want him to explain it to me in a way that his medical colleagues understand it. Mm-hmm. I want him to explain it to me in a way that I, as a layperson, can understand it. Mm-hmm. To me, that's no different than uh, me having a, a Bible study uh, and using theological terms that are multisyllabic, and people sitting there in the pew asking me, well, what did he just say, and, and how is that relevant to my life? It's my responsibility to, to convey, to communicate, uh, what I'm trying to say to them in a way that makes it relevant and purposeful to their lives. In the same way, I think that uh, uh, prosecutors, the legal profession, law enforcement has that same responsibility. But you have to understand that when it comes, that that might be an easier uh, situation to accommodate in civil matters. But when it comes to criminal matters, first of all, not very many people are going to come to you to say, well, you know, I, I really want to understand how to be a criminal. Okay? <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen. Not that I want to understand how to be a criminal. I want to understand why you can prosecute one person this way and a second person that way for what appears to be, based upon our knowledge, insufficient, incomplete as it may be, uh, for, for essentially the same crimes. Why is why is crack uh, prosecuted one way and powder cocaine prosecuted another? I cannot give you. I'm not asking you to to any to, answer to defend that. it. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm saying that's the kind of question that people commonly ask. Okay, but and what I'm trying to to get people to understand when I am approached with those same types of questions is. I, as a prosecutor, can't answer that question as to why it is that crack is uh, given a certain amount of time and cocaine is given a different amount of time. That's a question for your legislator, because your legislator is the one who helped to create those laws and put them into effect. As a prosecutor, I don't create the laws. All I do is interpret the law, and I try to apply that law to the situation that is placed before me. Now, if you are caught with cocaine, I'm going to charge you with cocaine. If you're caught with crack, I'm going to charge you with crack. Mm -hmm. Okay? It's not my job to go argue with anybody as to this one carries a higher sentence okay. than that one You're carries. You're talking about what takes place in the courtroom. I'm talking about what takes place before you can get to the courtroom. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the, the person, I, I'm not the suspect. I'm the public trying to understand. As mm-hmm. I read the paper, mm-hmm. I read the paper every day. As I read the newspaper and I see someone is charged with, with a certain crime. Mm-hmm. I want to know why that person is charged this way when last week I read about a similar incident and that person was charged a different way. And so I come to you. We sit down at Christina's. Uh-huh. That's, that's a plug for Christina's. We sit, down, <laughs> we sit down at Christina's and we're having breakfast. And I say, well, I read about this this morning and y'all prosecuting this 
this way and, and mm-hmm. last week a similar case and you were prosecuted and, and, and I, I don't understand the difference and I think that I'm a generally intelligent person, so I don't think that I'm the only person who's not a lawyer who doesn't understand this. And I'm sure that that's very true, because sometimes when I read about situations in the paper, I have the very same question. But what you need to understand is all you know is a blurb in the newspaper. You don't know all of the facts that pertained to the arrest at the time that the arrest was made. I'll use a common example, okay? Uh, Domestic violence, okay? Okay. Let's say an officer gets a phone call and I'm being beat up. Somebody come here to get me. Somebody, my husband's beating me, okay? He gets to the scene. He gets there. By the time he gets there, he says, uh, okay, I'm going to take him in for beating you up because you said he, he abused you. Well, no, I don't, I don't want you to take him to jail. I don't want you to do that, okay? We got to take him in anyway. A lot of times they will tell you, we have to take him in anyway. We got the car, we have to take him in. They take him in, they arrest him. Sometimes before they can even get processed, the alleged victim is there trying to get him out of jail, okay? By the time it comes to me, she's saying, I'm not going to testify, I'm not going to, whatever you decide you're going to do, I don't want to go through with it. I don't want him prosecuted at all. We, we just had a misunderstanding. Not going to do it. Then I have to make a decision. Now, I have the power to prosecute him regardless of what she's saying, okay? But then I have to look at, okay, now how am I going to prove this? The only people that were there were him and her. Mm-hmm. She's saying she ain't going to testify. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can subpoena her and I can make her testify, but what's she going to say when, when she gets on the stand? You know, I have to consider that. So then I have to decide, am I going to charge this with a simple battery? Am I going to dismiss it altogether because she doesn't want to prosecute it? Which, if he gets out and beats her again and kills her, then somebody's going to come back and ask me, well, why didn't you prosecute him to the full extent of the law? Because you know he did this before, because she complained before. We have a police report showing that she complained before. Do I charge him with something lesser so that then at least I can say, well, I did try to do something about it, you know, so he has a record so people are put on notice that he can be violent. There are all kinds of things that I have to weigh in making a decision as to how I handle that case. Mm -hmm. And that's true for any case that you read about in the newspaper. It's not as simple as police officers were called to this address and an arrest were made. They have to look at the entire circumstance before they decide what to charge somebody with. They have to look at what the witnesses are saying who were on the scene before they decide to charge somebody with something. They have to look at what other evidence is available before they decide on what they're going to charge somebody with. You can't just look at what's in the paper. The information that the average layperson has compared to the information that the police officer has at the time that he is working that scene, I mean, it it doesn't even compare in a lot of cases. So you can't just look at this newspaper blurb versus this newspaper blurb and say, well, they should have charged him with the same thing, because it's not that simple. It's just not that simple. And that's what the average citizen does not understand. There's a whole lot that goes into making a determination as to how a case is prosecuted. Now, is there some unfairness in there sometimes? Absolutely. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that that's not true. But it's not nearly nearly the amount of unfairness that I think a lot of people want to say that there is. Sure. And, And that's why I wanted you here because I wanted you to have the opportunity we've had these discussions before Mm -hmm. we've had them numerous times and so I'm 
I'm very familiar with your position and your explanation for this, but I think it will be beneficial for others to hear it as well. Because right now, we are in a very volatile time. And yeah. I'm, I'm not going to be hyperbolic and say that it's the most volatile time in the history of the nation. Mm. But we're in extremely volatile times. We are. Uh, uh, locally, uh, statewide, nationally. We, we are... Uh, we, we are sitting on the precipice of uh, violent outbursts, not just wrapped around race, but wrapped around economic distinctions and wrapped around how law enforcement uh, and the criminal justice system treats people of certain economic uh, backgrounds and, and certain racial backgrounds across this nation. It's, it's not confined to this area. But my number one concern is Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This is where I live. This is this is our home. And, and so I'm very concerned about that. I'm concerned about perception uh, because the perception that exists within this community is that uh, there is a, 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 a bigotry, a, a discrimination that takes place on the law enforcement side towards certain segments of the community. Uh, and I'm not asking you to defend or, or oppose. I'm, I'm simply asking you to, to share what your experience is so that perhaps we can have a better understanding of, of how these things happen. There was a time when I had a lot more communication with police officers, per se, than what I do now. So, and, and during that time, I lived in New Orleans. I was with the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office. Um, now I travel all over the state, and I have very few cases within the Baton Rouge area. Uh, I go as far as Shreveport. I come in back as far as Baton Rouge. So I have contact with a number of officers all over the state. But I don't, I can't really say that I know, like, sit down and have a cup of coffee with very many officers mm -hmm. within the Baton Rouge area. Generally speaking, let me say this. You're going to find prejudiced and bigoted people in any facet of the community that you you go into. That's true of the black community, that's true of the white community, that's true of the police force, that's true of preachers, that's true of anybody you come in contact with. Where you got those preachers? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm trying to make it clear that in this world there are bigoted and prejudiced people and they do all types of jobs. Sure. Okay, So I'm not going to sit up here and try to close my eyes and say, oh, this is fairyland and nobody is bigoted, nobody is prejudiced, okay? But I can tell you this. I have seen both sides of the spectrum, especially when I worked as a DA in Orleans. Back, I don't even think they allow them to do it anymore, but back in the day when I was there, you could ride with police officers as they went on to, and you did. And times. I did. Yes. I did. I used to ride with the police officers. And I would see how they were treated. Now, before you even answer me, well, maybe they were treated that way because of how they treated the people. Maybe that's true. Okay? 
Maybe that's true. I don't know. But I know in my experience, I would sit in the car when they come into a certain neighborhood because they were called there, because they received a call about a crime being committed, Mm -hmm. and they were going in trying to help somebody who claimed they were being hurt in some way. People throwing rocks and people throwing bottles at the car simply because it came into the neighborhood. People bamming on the car. They can't even stop to get out to address the fact that you're throwing rocks and bottles at the car because they're trying to get to the crime scene where they have been called. Mm -hmm. You know, I have seen how people talk to you while you're trying to work a scene and they're trying to tell you, okay, you need to get back. I, I have to work this scene. This is my job. And they can't do their job because Joe Blow, who's probably half drunk anyway in a lot of situations, is trying to tell him, you can't do that. Why are you picking on him? You know, this type of thing. So I'll talk to you in just a second. Just let me work. Let me do my job. Let me work this scene. I have seen that side of it also. So I think people need to be very cautious when they want to judge every situation as somebody being bigoted and somebody being prejudiced because it's that's a very difficult call to make when you don't know the other side of the story mm-hmm. you i mean it's just very difficult i'm not saying it doesn't happen it does happen you know but i've also seen the violence against the police officers who come in and they're trying to do their job in a specific way and they can't do their job because they're being interfered with by people who just don't like the police or who just don't want them to put pookie in jail or who just doesn't want you know to see any criminal taken away. Mm-hmm. You know, some people don't believe in the police at all. Mm-hmm. There are some people who say, just, just let me handle it on the streets. I think that's the craziest thing in the world, you sure. know. But there are people out there who think that way. Even if they were assaulted, they wouldn't call the police. They'd rather handle it themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can't get inside of individual minds and and make a determination as to what people are thinking, but I do know what I have seen as a result of riding with the police officers and seeing the types of things that they have had to put up with. This is a podcast that is sponsored uh, by a church, a black Baptist church located in uh, the heart, the mid-city section of the Baton Rouge community. Mm -hmm. Shiloh is a church that draws a cross-section of people from the length and breadth of this parish and beyond. So from that standpoint, I, I ask the question, what role can and should, you're, you, you've been a lifelong member of this church, but you've also been a practicing attorney for 30 plus years. What role do you think the church should play, specifically the black church? Doesn't have to be Baptist, but the black church should play in helping to educate the community on both sides uh, Mm -hmm. uh, with regard to uh, criminal justice issues, law enforcement issues, things of that sort. Is there a role that the church can play in that? Well, one thing that I know Shiloh did at one time, and I don't think that they have done it in many years. I, I know they haven't done it since you've been pastor, but I don't know if they were still doing it when Daddy was pastor. Um, they used to have the root beer summits, whereby you would have 
law enforcement come in and you would invite people from the community to come in and they would literally talk about these types of issues, you know, and then that gave the community a better understanding of how police thinks and that gave police a better understanding of what the community feels because the community has some legitimate gripes, you know, they, they feel like they're not protected. They feel like, uh, officers don't get to know them the way that they did back during a different time, you know, and those I think are legitimate gripes. You know, but I think if we could continue to do or not continue, start doing those types of things again, whereby you invite law enforcement to come in and then invite the community to come in and they just converse with each other, I think that will go a very long way to help build a better understanding. Um, as far as the black church as a whole, is concerned, I think we ought to take a larger role into talking to our youth about the things that they get into as a result of things that they see on TV or they hear in music and that type of thing. And don't get me wrong, I like to bump rap music just like everybody else, okay? But in my 55-year-old mind, I know that a lot of things that they talk about in rap music are not conducive to society. I don't think a lot of these kids understand that. You know, they think that, that that's cute or that's something that they should aspire to because they're looking at money and glitz and glamour and shoes and that type of thing. I argue with my girls all the time. You know, I just don't understand this culture that they've come into where they think that calling each other out each other's names and putting so much, much emphasis on shoes and whether or not they got red bottoms and, you know, they look at a guy and they make a determination as to whether or not he's a good guy for you to date by whether or not he can pull a wad of money out of his pocket as opposed to whether or not he will be you know, somebody who loves you and cares for you and will take care of you in the long term, you know, and is getting his money the right way. Uh, there are a number of things in music and in on social media and uh, out there in the community that we need to really start talking to our kids again and educating them that while this may be popular within your culture, this is not things that you aspire to because they lead you down the wrong way. You know, and I know a lot of people don't want to step on toes because a lot of times the kids get it from the parents, okay? But I think the black church needs to be willing to step on some toes. Mm -hmm. You know, I think you need to be able to tell that mama, no, you ought to be telling your son that <laughs> that's not the way that, that he should go, mm -hmm. that it might be a better idea for him to go this way. Mm -hmm. I think you need to educate the parents just like you educate the kids. And I think that we need to go back to a belief of it takes a village to raise a child. You know, we need to partner with the schools. We need to partner with the parents. We need to partner with law enforcement. We need to make it a community thing whereby we are emphasizing to these younger people that there is a better way than, you know, money, cars, and clothes. <laughs> you know, get something in your head. Mm -hmm. And then if you get something in your head, you can have the money, cars, and clothes, but you're getting it the right way. Right. What I hear you saying uh, is that the church has gotten away from a morality message. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and has opted for a different kind of message. And I 150% agree with that. 
there are reasons for that, uh, but those reasons are, are, are inadequate to justify the fact that the church, uh, which purports to represent a righteous God and a loving and compassionate Jesus, uh, will not give a message of morality to its uh, membership, but would opt for a message uh, of uh, prosperity and uh, miracle working and, and wealth and, and things of that sort. Uh, the morality message is not a popular message, and it causes you to step on uh, toes. And I think that there are latent fears that exist within uh, some churches, some pastors, that if you preach too heavy a morality message, that you're going to lose membership. And if you lose membership, then of course you lose all that accompanies membership, the ability to do ministry, and, and uh, those things go away. And so they opt for something uh, that they think would be uh, a better draw of people. And that, I, again, I'm not justifying, I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm not even rationalizing, I'm explaining the, the, the argument. And I think that it's sad that it has come to that place that we are actually fulfilling the prophecy that says that we will not speak truth to power and we will not speak truth on all sides. We will speak a truth. We will speak a version of the truth that we think people will accept and uh, affirm. But other truths we will choose to not speak. And I think that it's doing serious harm to the church. And I think it's one of the reasons why uh, the church is uh, is losing its efficacy within uh, the community. Uh, Statistics continue to show that church membership uh, is waning mm-hmm. uh, with each succeeding uh, year. And while it has been stronger in the African-American community than in other communities, that too is starting to change. That, that there's a generation of people out there for whom the, the church is not uh, relevant at all to, to their lives. It's not that they're opposed to the church. They're not in favor or opposed. They don't care. It, it doesn't matter to them at all. Well, I hear a lot of people uh, that I come in contact with talk about the fact that they're more spiritual than they are religious. Yeah. And I'm not suggesting that the church should, uh, you know, become so strict that it goes back to the days where whenever you did something that was outside of what people thought was morally right, you had to come big the church's part and, yeah. and and that type of thing. I don't I don't believe in that, you know, because I'd be begging the church's pardon every other day if if, if sure. that were the case. But I do think that the church has a job in emphasizing Christ and the way that that Christ wants us to live our lives, I think we have a job to just speak the plain and simple truth. Yes. And if that means you lose some people, then you lose some people. But if you truly, and I'm not a preacher, 
<laughs> let, me, let me say that very clearly. But I think that if you really have a God-centered, Christ-centered message, just like you're going to lose some people, you're going to draw some people back in once they see that you are trying to lead people down the way that Christ wants them to live their lives. Mm-hmm. And for those that, that you lose, I honestly believe that if you continue to reach out to them, eventually you'll they'll come back. You know, when they see that their way isn't working, they'll eventually come back. So I don't think that the church can afford to be afraid to preach the truth, thinking, oh, well, we're going we're gonna to lose members. Well, maybe you will lose some members, mm-hmm. but you're also going to gain some members. Mm-hmm. If people see that there is a reason for them to invest their time and their money and, and you know, their efforts into a positive message that is Christ-centered, I think you're going to gain some members also. Well, and, and the other thing is, ultimately, it's not about the church. It's not about the local church, mm-hmm. the, the individual local church. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. Every local church that focuses solely on the, the, the sustainability of that local church to the detriment of the gospel, to, to the dilution of the strength of the gospel message, has done Christ a disservice. I agree. Uh, uh, our strength comes from our reliance upon him not our reliance upon what we see as the best viable option to maintain our own strength within our our communities. And and I think that that's where we have gotten off track, speaking mm-hmm. as the church, and I am a preacher, mm-hmm. uh, uh, speaking as the I think that's where we have gotten off track. We have allowed ourselves to become uh, uh, diverted in our attention away from the gospel and, and more toward how we can uh, sustain and elevate our local congregations. Not, not even elevating ourselves, but elevating our local congregations. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, and, and I think that it has proven to uh, be detrimental to what it is that we have come to do. And another problem is, you know, there are certain people who just don't like church, they don't like religion, that type of thing. And they are very, very vocal in why they don't like church and why they don't like religion. And, you know, they might have some valid points in there. But I think we that do believe in church and we that do believe in religion need to become more vocal about why we think church and religion is worthwhile. You know, but we, and I'm including myself in that, we tend to say, well, you know, that's controversial. You know, that's people, people got to make their own choice. I'm not going to be a Bible thumper. Well, I'm not a Bible thumper either. But I do think that I ought to be able to stand up to a person who comes at me and says, well, you know, they got hypocrites in the church and the church did this to me and the church did that to me. No, that wasn't the church. That was an individual in the church. And what you have to realize is that you come to church for a very different reason. You're not coming to church because Sally over there is is there and, and she don't like you. You don't ever have to talk to Sally if you don't want to. You know, you're required to love Sally by God, but you ain't required to have any relationship with Sally. You come to church because you want to be fed and you want to learn more about Christ and you want to learn more about how to live for Christ and how to conduct yourself in a world where you're going to be faced with Sally's and Mary Ann's and Joe Bob's and everybody else that you come in contact with. That is why I come to church, you know. 
I'm not trying to, to build no long-lasting relationships with anybody that I don't particularly care for in the church, just like I'm not trying to do that on my job anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I'm coming to be spiritually fed. Mm-hmm. And you can't tell me by looking at something on YouTube every day of the week, you're becoming spiritually <laughs> fed. Yeah. And I love YouTube. Don't, I know you I do. love YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But you need more than that. No. And you need to find yourself a place where you're spiritually fed. And I think we need to be more vocal about saying that to people. In your role as as a church member, and, and you have been very active, you're not just a, a bench member, you've been very active uh, in all aspects of Shiloh over the years. You've raised your two daughters in Shiloh, and they were very active in the church. As a church person, how can the church do a better job of communicating its message to a segment of the community that needs the message but doesn't necessarily come to the church? How, how, how do we develop inroads with other community groups? Last week I had uh, Reverend Raymond Jetson here and he was talking about metromorphosis and the Urban Congress and mentoring programs and things of that sort. And, 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 and those things are not the church, but those things can be helpful to the church mm-hmm. in reaching the community that we are trying to reach. Uh, uh, there needs to be, in my opinion, some kind of, of a synthesis within uh, these groups that allows us uh, to come together and, and work toward a common goal for the betterment of our entire community. Uh, and what are your thoughts with regard to that? Because I know that you've been a part of other groups. Uh, Jack and Jill is one of those that that, right. that, that you uh, uh, have highly touted and, and your girls were a part of uh, throughout their, their young lives. So talk about that for a second. Well, I think that all you can do is if the people don't come to you, you have to go to the people. And I know that Shiloh has a program whereby people go out into the the streets and and try to minister to people who may not be very prone on coming to church, you know, and they try to to talk to people about coming to Christ. So I think that that's about all you can do. You know, all you can do is bring your message to the people and meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, a lot of people are critical of that because they say, well, you know, all people are going to do is they're going to, they, when you feed the hungry, all they're going to do is take your food and then they're going to say whatever and then they're still not going to come to church. That's true, okay? You are going to have a whole lot of people that are going to do that. But you're also going to have the one or two that are going to hear your message and they're going to try to make the change that is necessary in their life. You can't stop doing what you know is right because you have people who are going to take advantage of that. I think you have to continue to go out there and try to give your message. And, you know, once again, I'm not a preacher, so if I get this parable wrong, (laughs) please correct me. But, you know, Jesus talks about that in the Bible. He talks about the fact that some of your seed is going to fall on fertile ground and some of your seed is going to fall on on thorny ground. You can't stop sowing the seed just because some of it is going to fall on thorny ground. You just have to be consistent. You have to keep going out there. And the people are going to hear your message, and they're going to come. Are they going to necessarily come in droves? No. But they're going to come, and they're going to consistently come. And you can't be discouraged by those who want to criticize. You just have to be 
more vocal than they are about the reason why you do what you do. And eventually they're going to do one of two things. They're going to stop arguing with you and go away, or they're going to be swayed by your argument and give you a shot. Mm-hmm. So I think you're doing all that you can do. You have to go and meet the people where they are and then try to get them to, to come in. And you have to get to the youth. You have to get to the youth. Mm-hmm. Because getting to the youth does two things. It keeps your church young. And if you get to the youth, the youth will pester their parents about wanting to come and become involved in things here, which will cause a lot of them to come and participate in the church also. You know, you can't, we can't be so critical of the youth either. You know, I criticize people just like everybody else. I do, either in my head or to my friends. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm a saint, okay? But you can't turn away people because you don't like the way they wear their hair or you don't like the particular dress that they wear or you don't like the fact that they're wearing jeans to church as opposed to wearing slacks. You know, and no, I'm not going to sit up here and say, well, that might be all they have in their closet. It might be, but it might be because they just didn't feel like putting anything else on. My question is, what difference does it make? Mm-hmm. You know, I may not personally like dreads, but why do I care if the if Brother John over there does like dreads and he's coming to church trying to get a word? Why do I feel incumbent it's incumbent upon me to tell him, well, you know, you really shouldn't wear those dresses. Why is that my business? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I should be trying to concentrate on getting a word like Brother John is trying to do mm-hmm. with my frizzy hair and him with his dreadlocked hair. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to quit being so critical of everybody who comes to the church because what you do is you just turn them away. If every time somebody comes in and you don't like what they wear and you tell them about it, or you don't like their hair and you tell them something about it, or you don't like the way that they speak and you tell them something about it, that doesn't encourage them to come back and try to be more involved in the church. That just solidifies in their brain the criticism that they heard about the church all of their lives. And they go look to somewhere else. People are looking for acceptance. And if they can't find acceptance in the church, where are they going to find it? You know, we need to do more to be accommodating to people once they come in Mm -hmm. and quit not loosening our personal standards per se, but quit being so judgmental about people whose standards may vary from ours. And if our light shines bright enough and they truly are wrong, they're going to be swayed to our side. And if you're afraid you're going to be swayed to their side, then maybe you need to question your values to begin with. These are the kinds of conversations I have at breakfast every morning, uh, folks, just, j- just in case you're, you're interested. Um, some time ago, I guess now about 18 years ago, you ran for judge uh, <laughs> yes. uh, in East Baton Rouge Parish. Uh, would you ever – it was not a successful bid, but you did run, and you made, you made a good showing. It was the first time and up to this point the last time. Yes. Have you ever had any thoughts with regard to, uh, again, pursuing uh, a judgeship or some other political platform? No. I mean, I've thought about it, but I'd, I'd never do it again. No. What's your view of, uh, of the current political climate as a spectator, uh, as, as just an observer, the current political climate within East Baton Rouge Parish? East Baton Rouge Parish is very conservative. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing, because the older I get, the more conservative I become. Mm 
uh, I I don't have a a lot of problem with most of the judges, um, and the the prosecutors and DAs and well DA and Attorney General as they sit right now. Like I said, there are problems in every facet of 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 community, but I think that. Overwhelmingly, the judges that I come in contact with on the bench are pretty fair. Um, the prosecutors that I come come in contact with, for the most part, try to be fair and impartial when they're prosecuting cases. Um, there's some in that I wouldn't want my case to fall before if I had to go before them. But I mean, I'm sure there are people who say the same thing about me, and I try to be fair. When I screen and prosecute a case, I, I really try very hard. Like I said, it's very hard to judge that when you don't know the ins and out of every case. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I am happy with what we have in place now, and I think that there's room for improvement. Thank you, Sonny, for agreeing to share with me today on the Thrive Podcast. And uh, uh, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm extremely proud of you. Well, thank and you. And I love you very, very much. And I feel the same about you. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for viewing. We'll be back next time.